people are like a little lazy. So if you send them <laughs> your, your list of 30 ideas, they're like, great, sounds like we're good to go. Welcome to Clock or Counter. I'm Ryan Young, and with me is James Wiseman. And this week, I'm visiting in Durham, North Carolina, so I'm in the Spoon Factory right now. And today, we're going to talk about building a routine, specifically the first day and sort of the first trip. So like the first time you actually meet the practice. Well, this is a great time to talk about this because in the last four weeks, I've built routines with both Ilka Zeman and Daniel O'Neill. And I'm super excited that we're recording our first in-person podcast where you and I are in the same room. So we're having a very normal, natural conversation where two people sit in chairs facing directly at each other with the microphone in front of them. So this is going to feel very normal and natural, just like we always talk. (laughs) Awesome. So why don't you start us off with what you think are the important things to think about on your first day of building a routine? So I think you're going to touch on this, but I think there's a lot of things you need to do before even the first day. So there's like a day zero to routine building. So what do you think for you are the important things before you even start? The deciding on goals. So for me, it's the first thing I'll talk about even before even agreeing to partners is what do you want out of this? What was the result of this partnership and what are we trying to achieve? Are we trying to win? Are we trying to have a good time? Do we want to build a nice routine people are going to plug for? What, what are the goals? Yeah. So I was thinking like what the universe of goals are. So obviously there's to win. Another one is to put on the best show. It is kind of what you said, like have the most applause. It might be, you want the routine that you're, proud to show on video it might be the routine that shows the highest potential of your play kind of like go the going for routine or you might have a routine where you want to be the showcase or something i think there's a lot of different kinds of goals people can have but i was interested that you said you like to know that before you even partner with someone which i think is so smart and i never really thought about it that way but i wonder if that's changed for you because i think for me we both talked about how we've achieved most of our tangible freestyle goals that we set for ourselves. So I'm now kind of goal agnostic. So it's relatively easy for me to partner with someone I want to play with. And I ask them what their goals are. And that usually makes it pretty easy for me to just say, okay, like I can work with that. But for instance, when I played with Ilka, I know she said like, you have goals, whether you realize it or not, or will admit it or not. So like, let's figure out what those are. And we kind of, talked through that and it was interesting for me it's like one of my goals that came out is I wanted Ilka to have a good experience which on the one hand sounds like some kind of noble benevolent virtue signaling thing but I don't think it's that at all I think it's like it's almost it was like important to me for her to have a good experience because I know she had a bad experience with me before when we infamously played at Frisbeer in 2014 and she wanted to put in the time to build a routine and I did not really do that right and that was an example of what goes wrong when you don't talk about your goals beforehand. So I don't think I fully realized at the time that Ilka wanted to take it as a serious routine building exercise. And had we probably spoken about our goals before, we wouldn't have had that miscommunication. Mm-hmm. Um, but in any case, I mean, my a big part of my goal is making sure that when she came here, she got that routine building experience that she didn't get in 2014. But I'll just say you can have lots of different goals. I mean, it could even be you just want to hang out with your buddy and, you know, have fun trying to come up with cool ideas for a routine. 
So there's lots of different goals you can have. So I think that's a really smart way to start. So another day zero item, you bring this up all the time, but having a list of things you want to do, like actual moves that you want to do. Yeah. So what I always dread, and sometimes it's unavoidable if you get a partner at the last minute or, or whatever, like sometimes you truly don't have enough time to prepare. But I think a lot of our conversation today is going to assume that you are preparing for big tournament and you're going to have time to practice with your partner, whether it's one day, two days, or even many, many days. So I understand that a lot of times the things I'm going to say now aren't really possible. So for me, what I'm always trying to do is find a way to make routine building as painless as possible because it can be a very frustrating process for people. I think like any creative process, like if you were writing a movie with somebody or like building some art exhibit with somebody, there's going to be some tension. So whatever you can do up front to make your lives easier is going to make it a much more pleasant experience for all the people involved. So one way I like to do that is to have as many ideas from everybody as possible before we even start building the routine. Because the worst thing that can happen is you're a minute and a half into the song, you've been playing for two hours, you're already getting on each other's nerves and you're sitting there going, all right, what's next? And no one has a good idea or maybe you're kind of fighting back and forth about which idea you're going to use or you're trying to experiment with things, but they're not working right away and you're too frustrated to work through them. So I think kind of sitting down with your partner and you can even start with yourself, just come up with your own ideas, ask your partner to do the same and then come together and make that list. But, you know, in the spin factory, I have a whiteboard and I just write down, I want to do a move with a Fleming guy to shoot and I really like that move where you do the bad attitude hold. And I just write down these move ideas or catch ideas or just little elements that I know I like to do, or I know my partner likes to do, or maybe some new thing that I've learned that I want to incorporate into the routine and over do this. Like we had Daniel and I three times, four times more ideas than we even ended up using, but they were on the board. So every time we were at that stopping point where we built something, we could stop and say, okay, like, let's look at the board. What's there? What's going to fit into this music? Now, let me pause there and say, do you do something like that? Or do you think it's a good idea? Or is there any reason you wouldn't want to do that? No, I think it's all, always a good idea to do it for yourself, at least. I was yeah. going to ask, do you think it's a good idea to share ideas before the first meeting? I think that's more questionable. But definitely make the list for yourself. So that's interesting. Why would you not want to share it beforehand? I think... When you share the list, the other person generates like a bunch of stuff, bunch of thoughts without context. Because mm -hmm. when you're there, you explain how each uh, item in your list works. Yeah. And they're not going to have that. They're going to be like, well, maybe this sounds dumb and they discard it too easily in their brain. Got it. That's true. And we should come back to the topic of keeping an open mind because I think that's super important when building a routine and also figuring out your patience tolerance, like how many times... Like how much work are you going to put into a co-op to see if it could work? But we'll come back to that. So I thought you were going to do a different direction to that, although I guess you kind of said this a little bit. I My only concern about sharing my ideas beforehand, or at least too early, is that they would have too much influence on the other person. So in a lot of ways, it can be more valuable if they bring their totally independent, fresh ideas, you bring your totally independent, fresh ideas, and then it's that merger that makes it something you know magic yeah like but also like collaborative or you know however whatever words you want to use and then i also think sometimes 
people are like a little lazy. So if you send them your, <laughs> your list of 30 ideas, they're like, great, sounds like we're good to go. And they may not bring the same number of ideas to the table. I also think no matter how hard you try, you're always going to have a better sense of what you can do and what you want to do than you'll be able to guess what they can do and what they want to do. So if you're the only one who brings your ideas or you bring your ideas first, it might make the routine too much about you. Now, I would still say like it's not that much of a problem in my mind if both people share their ideas before day one. And in that way, at least each party developed their ideas separately rather than kind of one party influencing the other party. But, you know, now we're getting into some fine hair splitting. So I don't know if there's like a right or wrong answer for that. But one more clarification on it. The ideas are so vague. Like it really is usually one move or maybe two moves or a catch. It's just sort of like, if I'm playing with you, I'm like, I want to find a way to do a cool switch guidance combo. Like whatever it takes, let's make a cool combo that leads to the switch guidance. Because one of the things that I think we'll get to later is, I do think to the extent you can, you want every combo to have some kind of signature moment. And maybe you have two or three, but like usually you only have one, if that. And one is kind of enough. Like it's the move that you're going to name that co-op naturally. Just like, this is the Switch Guidus co-op. Like we know what it is because that's the part of it that matters. But I should say, just in the interest of sharing both sides, when I played with Ilka, she actually did not like this. She did not like having the list of ideas ahead of time. And she much preferred to kind of come up with the ideas in the moment. So, you know, we would put stuff together when we kind of ran out of ideas. She would just listen to the music and then we'd try and come up with things in real time. I still, it like worked for us and it was partially why it worked for us is we had a long time. She was here a long time and I think we built like one <laughs> call up a day every day for 30 days. So it wasn't that hard to, you know, keep just building a little tiny piece and then coming back the next day with our brains fresh and our ideas fresh. Yeah. But I think it can lead to a lot of problems in a lot of situations, especially if you have to grind it out. You have five hours app for his beer. you got to build a routine with this person. And if you're trying to come up with all the ideas in the moment, one kind of the louder voice wins sort of thing will start to happen. Like whoever is the more dominant player or maybe the player who just has like a little bit more creative proliferation is going to just be spitting out all the ideas and the ideas will be perhaps like a little less equal. So I tend to not like that idea. Um, and one last thing I'll say, which is going to sound so anathema. By the way, I should make a shirt that just says one last thing, which is like my motto. I just say one last thing and then I have like 10 more things. But I think sometimes people get kind of mystical about the importance of the music. And I am obsessed with music. I was a musician. I think the music is so important. But freestyle so easily bends to fit music. So I think like part of the Ilka's argument is like the music is so important so don't pre-build your freestyle because you want to listen to the music and then let the freestyle come to you i think that's defensible but it's just not how i see it because it's not that hard to speed up or slow down a combo to try and fit the music and yes sometimes the co-op is too long or too short and it's not going to fit in the music block but then i go back to my list of 10 ideas so like when dan and i were building our routine we could look at our list and be like that's short that's long that's medium and like just by having that we know like all of these short combos will fit in this 10 second section of the music. Like we will find a way to fit it. Um, and my experience making a lot of freestyle videos is like to give a concrete example, I'll make a whole video 
because I'm lazy. I don't check if the music is going to work. Put it on YouTube. It's copyrighted, blocked in every country. I will add a new song to the to the video. I will just cut out this music, add a new song. And first of all, 90% of the time, the freestyle already fits over the new song <laughs> without any changes. It's like a miracle. And then other times it's tiny changes. And yet somehow the freestyle still almost always ends up hitting on the downbeat. And I think that's because we play with a certain rhythm and tempo and it's pretty easy to adjust that to the music. Now that was very controversial. Ryan, you're also very artistically inclined. You're a ballet dancer. You're all kinds of dancers, honestly. Like, what do you think of that? I think there's multiple different ways to build a routine. Yeah. And part of, I think when you're in the finding partners, you have to find someone. I mean, you should agree ahead of time how you're going to build the routine. So this is like part of the goals. Yeah. Is like the first thing is how many days of practice are you going to commit to before the tournament? Yeah. That's a big one. And when you and I play, we usually commit to one week. And we build very mechanically, which is the process you're describing, which is write down all the pieces, listen to the music like 20 times, and then find out all the blocks, and then fit the pieces to the blocks in the music, and then you're done, which works really well for when we play together. But I think it makes a certain look of routine that people may not like. But I think building it that way is very successful, and you can build a really high-scoring routine that way. So if your goal is to win, yeah. it's like a good, efficient way to use your practice time. Because the end goal is to get into run-throughs, and that's where you polish the routine into like a winning routine. Yeah, now, I mean, I think a lot of this, though, because what you said is really important, I don't think I emphasized it enough, but is that we're always playing under heavy limitations. So if we had a year to build a routine, which would be more appropriate if we were figure skaters or something, probably even longer than that, you could not, you wouldn't need to rely so much on these kind of like hacks to find ways to build a routine faster. But because you usually don't have that much time, these kind of things can really be helpful. But I, I kind of understand what you're saying about how it can build a routine of a certain kind of look. But I also think this method scales really well. So for instance, like one thing I really care about is having thematic sections for my routine. So it's like, here's a section that's all about like kicks and like, here's a slower section of the song that's going to be more about like turnovers or kind of like slower, flowy, you know, rim kind of moves or like, here's a tip section. It's like, I try to take things from even like music theory about having like certain kind of A, B, A, C, A patterns and things like that. And I think it creates more like a story arc to routine. It helps you remember routine and it kind of, like freestyle can too easily be just like, here's a series of random moves with music in the background. And I try to find ways around that. But like this process can accommodate that because it's just like, I've got 10 turnover ideas, 10 kick ideas, 10 roll ideas, whatever. And then you can also, you also have to have a certain degree of flexibility in each of your ideas, right? So maybe as originally envisioned, this kick combo isn't going to fit in this music. But how many changes do I need to make in order to make it fit the music? Probably not very many. Mm. And I want to go back to you on like other methods of building routine routines. But I do think another thing that is important to me is to kind of use a little bit of everything when it's helpful, right? So there's nothing dogmatic about it. And I'll come back to this idea in terms of practicing a routine. But I think like having your list of ideas is really helpful. But sometimes 
when nothing's seeming to work and nothing's seeming to fit, you do have to use kind of the Ilka approach and stop in the moment, listen to music and see if you can come up with things. So there's lots of different techniques you can apply if one technique isn't working. I think that's kind of like a general principle of life. Like <laughs> this technique isn't working. Maybe it's the best technique, but it's not working right now. So let's try a different one and see if it gets us to the right place. It's a growth mindset. Yeah. But like, tell me a little bit more about how you think like having these ideas ahead of time can make a specific kind of routine. And are there ways to bend the technique to create the kind of routine you might want? I think the biggest restriction is I only really know what I can do when I'm building my individual list and I'm just guessing what the other person can do. And so I'm thinking of ideas that only really involve myself, but like standing on top of the other person, like I cannot put that in the list. I mean, I can write that down, but I think that the magic is one iteration past that. So uh, one thing you keep saying is we build the list beforehand and Ilka's method is you listen to the music in the moment and you think of something. I think there's a big difference between, let's say you have two days to make the routine. You build the list ahead of time so you make day one easier. Yeah. But at night, the first day one night, you should also build another list for the next day. And I think that list is more important than the first list. Yeah, because now you have a better sense of what you're probably going to do. But I'll add another thing you can do, which I definitely did with Oka this year. And whether I do it depends a lot on who I'm playing with and how familiar I am with them. Before Ilk and I played, I watched basically every, like honestly, maybe every routine on the internet of Ilka. And one, I think with anybody, you find that there's common patterns they have in the routine. So it's sort of like, I know that you like to do about attitude hold. So let's see if we can find a new spin on, no pun intended, on like a combo that you've done frequently. It's like that at least for me, helps me get past that barrier of not knowing what my partner can do. And another question I like to ask, which Ilka asked me, that's kind of related to all this, is asking your partner, what do you, what's something you're excited about doing that you've never done before? And that's a good one. Like that can be a great starting place for a combination. But I feel like I skipped a step. So I wanted to go back and ask you about it. So when I start with my list of ideas and get my list of ideas for my partner, you know, usually it is one move. So then the question is we have to build something around it. So the way Dan and I did it, and here's where I become much more fluid in terms of like try every different technique to see what works. So Dan and I, we just went through the list and started just building pieces of combos now. So it's like, okay, we know we're going to have some combo where you're going to do a knee trap. So let's like build the pieces that get to that point. And we build like maybe half of the combo it's like, okay, great. Like put that down. Like That's in the box. So the list of moves kind of evolves into a list of pieces of combos, which can also then evolve into full combinations. And now we have kind of a new list that is a little bit more developed than the old list. And also, like, like you said, you usually listen to the music a lot before you even start writing your moves down. Even when we're making the moves, we kind of start saying to each other, like, this is something that might fit really well in the bridge section, or like this might fit really well in the quiet section or like, Hey, you know, that section where those, those music cues that are really close together, this like percussive combination would enable us to hit all those music cues. So you can already be working in the music when you're kind of creating these combos, even if you're not playing the music in the background and repeating it over and over again to add it. I wonder, do you, when do you start, I guess, do you build the routine linearly? So like the music has like 
peaks and things to hit? Like, do you think it's easier to start being like, all right, let's put our biggest combo on the biggest crescendo and then build around outward from there? I think it's a great idea. I've done that to a small extent, I think. There are times where you're really excited about one section or one combo. And so you lend yourself to doing that. But I tend to build my routines linearly. But I will say one thing I believe very strongly in is trying to give each section of the routine at least, this is kind of a weird phrasing, it's not going to work very well, but I'll fix it, at least equal amount of time or as much time as each section needs. And here's what I'm trying to avoid. What a lot of people do is they build a routine linearly and they keep starting from the beginning. And so the beginning of the routine gets practiced endlessly and the middle and end of the routine doesn't get practiced very much. So even though I build routines linearly most of the time, I build the first section. And then as soon as we barely hit it, it's like, cut that off. We're moving on to the next section. And then all we work on is the next section, cut that off, move to the last section. All we do is the last section or however many sections there are. And that way you don't have the problem that a lot of routines have where you're really good at the beginning, not so good at the rest of the sections. Um, now I should say, like, as I'm saying all this, like all, everything I do depends on my partner. Like, I don't think Dan and I did this. I think Daniel is more in the Paul Candy mindset of like, we're just going to do the routine from beginning to end over and over and over again. Um, and I think there is some merit to that. And you could argue that the beginning of the routine is so important that it's worth putting in that extra time in. But for me, like if I have my druthers, I like to practice really like each section independently. And I even have like an app on my phone that makes it really easy for me to like split the song into sections so we can practice one part. What's that? I think it's called the Choreo Loop. I've used different apps over the years. It's whatever app, you know, happens to be the most handy during the particular year. I think their apps are always small and they die. And I'll say the app I'm using now is really great, except that once a day, it will stop in the middle of the routine. It just happens one time. You never know what's going to happen. But I, I warn everybody it'll happen. And usually it's not such a big deal. Yeah, that's so useful. And it's made for dance, but I've never seen it used in a dance anything. Really? Yeah, I don't think teachers even know about it. Yeah, I mean, it's really easy because, you know, you can just be playing the song. You just hit like a starting point and you say like, from now on, start the song here. Because there's always that kind of frustrating moment when you're trying to practice the thing you're working on and you're using your big fat finger to try to scroll to the right part of the song. And that can be a real pain. So with this, you just, when you hit back, it takes you to the part of the song that you want to learn and you can keep doing that. So is, is there a time for you where you've started a routine at the crescendo or like not at the beginning? It's usually, I think, yeah, like when I was playing with Daniel, I think we didn't, we may have started at the start, but we definitely didn't like go one after the other. Yeah. We built the crescendos and then bridged them together. Yeah, it's interesting. I know that for a lot of writers, and I don't know if the analogy works so well, but a lot of writers don't write the intro until the end. Mm -hmm. And it makes a little more sense to me in writing in the sense that working backwards yeah you kind of need to know what the whole piece is about before you can kind of introduce it but i guess you could make the same argument for freestyle like once you know what you built into your routine you can kind of tell the story better or kind of introduce the story routine at the beginning a little more succinctly but i think also for me a lot of times the beginning of the song is usually like one of the best parts of the song like it's probably why i chose it you know (laughs) there's probably you know I think we talked about this before. It is so rare to have a good routine song and it can be so frustrating looking for them that I think 
pretty much the only chance you have of luring me in is to have a good beginning. So I'm usually excited to start working on the beginning because I think there's something really important about it. Yeah. So in other words, I'm saying like, I kind of, I don't want to seem like I'm disagreeing that you should start at the climax, but I think a lot of times coincidentally, the music I like to choose has a beginning that kind of is the climax mm -hmm. or like is part of the climax. So it makes sense to start there. Okay. What else? What have I missed? Uh, I don't think we talk about listening to the music, like learning the music before practice day. So day zero task, learn the music. Yeah, that is important. And I think that means more than just listening to it in the background, right? Yeah, like count the crescendos at least. Yeah, this is only marginally related, but I thought it was like a, it's a worthwhile storytelling. So in 2012, my first world win with Paul Kenny and Daniel O'Neill Paul Kenny flew to New York for us to practice at Columbia University where Dan and I were at school and the weather was really bad. And, you know, at a university in New York City, our dorm rooms were really small. They were like 70 square feet or something. And so Paul, Dan and I were crammed into this little dorm room and we built the whole routine just sitting at a computer, listening to the music, like holding a disc but we weren't able to throw it or do anything with it and you know we would literally be like paul throws it and paul would just hand me the disc and i'd be like i do this and i would like pretend to tip it and then i would hand it to daniel and we built the whole routine that way but one kind of why i thought of it now is we were just sitting there listening to the music over and over and over again and really trying to understand what the music was about and choreographing the routine that way Obviously, that's why we had to do it because we couldn't practice with space anywhere. But one other thing I want to say about it as a word of caution, when you try to build or choreograph to the music without actually performing the combinations, is you're almost always wrong about how long it's going to take you to do. Do you think it's styles. always wrong in the same direction? I think it's usually way slower than you realize. You think? I always think the disc is slower than I think. That's what I mean. Like, yeah. you think you can perform that co-op in five seconds, but it's going to take you 10 seconds. Exactly. <laughs> Occasionally, it goes the other way. Um, like, for instance, there's a section of my routine with Daniel where there's music cues that are really close together. And the thing we built, we have to really stretch it out to make it work. Except that we're also sort of hoping outdoors in the wind that'll slow things down is a whole another factor is you can build the whole routine, have the timing down perfectly, but whether there is wind and how much wind there is and where the wind is coming from can wildly change how long it takes you to complete your combinations, <laughs> which, you know, I think is one of the things that's most frustrating about preparing for a big tournament that's outside is that you'll never be able to really choreograph the routine exactly how it will be performed because you can't know how the wind will change the timing of what moves you're trying to do. Do you, I know Paul Kenny likes to always have the first day of practice inside. Do you think it makes a difference? So I have come to the belief that even if I know the worlds or whatever is outside in bad wind, I always build it inside if I can. And now I have the ability to do that with the spin factory, but even before I would do everything I could to build inside. And I think it's because it's way more pleasant. I think it's <laughs> I was gonna mention that. super unpleasant to try to build a routine outside. Cause like sometimes you, sometimes a combo is so hard when you're trying to figure out how to do it 
But once you get it, it's easy. Mm-hmm. But if you're outside and you can't do it, one, you don't really know why you can't do it. Is it because it's impossible or is it because the wind is messing us up? And if it's because of the wind, does that mean we shouldn't even try to put it in the routine? <laughs> or like, I don't know, like the wind just adds a whole Simplifies. Yeah. So it's usually, I think it's just easier and more convenient to build it inside and then find all the changes you need to make outside. So like at some point you have to take that routine outside. And when I build it inside, I try to keep that in mind of like, one, I pick a wind direction inside of like, let's assume the wind is going this way. And to the extent we can, let's try to position ourselves how we'll be in the wind. And at least with experienced players, that's relatively easy. Although I, I'll say like I played with a newer player recently and that was a lot harder for that player because they weren't used to having to think so much about the wind and how that would change what their positioning was. But then obviously once you do take it outside, you make a lot of changes of like, oh, I thought that, you know, double spinning upside down contestants pull is going to work, but it's not like, let's change it. So you tend to agree that you would also rather build it inside. Yes. The pleasant factor is underrated. Yeah. Because you, yeah, you just don't have... <laughs> You're standing around a lot just listening and talking and being warm for that time is essential. Yeah. I mean, I remember Graf and I built our 2019 routine in January or February in Berlin. It was freezing outside and we're in the velodrome and that can certainly be super, super unpleasant. But yeah, overall, I think if I have a choice, I'd rather build it inside. But a lot of times that isn't an option. It was not an option for me most of the time until I left New York City. I mean, we never had gym space in New York. So we always had to do it outside. And my only cheat code for that is, and this is also because I had work, but we'd go out at like 6 a.m. and we'd practice then. And for whatever reason, it seems like there's less wind in the morning. I know that sounds like a crazy, like uninformed non-meteorologist take. But I know like my dad's a big fisherman, fly fisherman, and they care a lot about the wind. And they always go out really early. And one reason they go out early is they know that the wind won't be a problem. But usually by the afternoon, the wind's a problem. I think it has something to do with, you know, temperature changes and things like that. So, you know, if you're worried about building a routine outside, one kind of hack is to do it early in the morning before day heats up when the wind is a lot calmer. Sometimes, not always, but sometimes. All right. So you're at the field. It's the first day. What do you do? (laughs) What do we do? Okay. So I think the first thing, there's some equipment things or there's some like prep you should do when you're there. The first thing is you should have the loudest music box possible. Absolutely. Like a lot of times you're traveling when you're practicing. So the person you're traveling to should bring the music box out. Yes. That's so important. Also having good desks is important. Also, one thing we didn't mention is deciding whether you're going to have more little desks. What do you think is more important for a co-op routine? And we should have a whole debate about multiple desks and routines because I have some mixed feelings about it. But it's good to be on the same page about that. I usually talk about that before even agreeing. Yeah. Playing. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> for one, if you're playing with Paul Kenny and you go to practice and you only have three discs with you, you don't have enough. <laughs> so you, you need to know how many, how many, how many discs you're going to need. Another thing is <clears throat> if your music starts right this like if it the intro is very short Mm -hmm. you should add space to the beginning of your song so you have time to play it and run to get into position and ideally space that cues you to when the music (laughs) starts if you're gonna throw it right in the music so ilk and i had this problem when we had to find like this like voiceover basically that fit the music and uh, enabled us to throw on the very first music cue but 
that can sometimes be a little bit of a hassle and a little bit frustrating. That's also another like day zero thing is because the routines have to be three minutes or four minutes, depending on the division. You want to know that one, your song, but you need to know when you start in the song mm-hmm. and when you're going to end in the song. Because if someone gives you a file that's four minutes and five seconds, you might think, great, this is perfect. But then when you're building the routine, you realize, well, actually we need to start 15 seconds in and now the song isn't long enough. Or you might build the whole routine get to the end and be like, well, actually like, we really need to end here. And mm-hmm. this now the routine is too short. So you definitely want to talk about where you start and where you end and make sure the song is the appropriate length. So let's maybe talk and let's get something else about the actual process of building a co-op and how to go about kind of perfecting it. Or like, I guess both like deciding whether it's viable. Yeah. I was going to talk about why we talk about goals being so important. And it's because when you build the co-op, it's going to guide your decisions Yeah, and you'll both be on the same page. So I was talking to James earlier about how we should branch. So there's like, a lot of our routine building is how do we win? Yeah. But that's not everyone's goal. So we need, we're going to like split the conversation into parts. Yeah. So like the first part is when the goal is to win, how do you build co-ops? And when the goal is something else, how do you build co-ops? Yeah. But I also think there's even another layer of like, are you a pro player or are you an amateur player? Cause that also, that's also another layer to your goals, mm-hmm. right? Yep. So if you're trying to win, and you're a pro player, you're probably trying to build safer co-ops that you can hit. If you're an amateur player and you're trying to win, you're probably trying to build more difficult co-ops. You have to overperform to win. Yeah, yeah. So like you're gambling and taking on bigger challenges to win. Whereas if you're a pro, you're playing safer. But I don't know. I'm, I'm, I don't want to go too much into that. But like that's just another layer I think about because it's not just about am I trying to win? It's also like, what is my position? Like, like what is my best approach? Yeah. Like, yeah. Which depends a lot on your skill level, I think. Um, but like one thing I do think is true because I kind of had this debate with Ilk a lot. A lot of goals lead to the same conclusion. So like if you're trying to win or trying to have the best show or trying to have the routine that, you know, looks great on video, almost all those rules to me have like the same endpoint. Mm-hmm. So like, I'll give you an example that I was talking with, with Daniel, with me and Ilka. Like there was a couple times where I said, you know, I think we need to change this because it's a little bit too risky and this alternative is safer. And Ilka was kind of chiding me like, oh, like here you are, you're trying to win again. Like I thought you said you weren't worried about winning. And I was like, no, 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 you know, like this is about the performance part. Cause like one of our goals was having the best show we could have. And like when I was talking to Daniel about it, I said like, when I'm building a freestyle routine, I'm willing to build in the risk of a certain number of drops. Like I'm comfortable being like, yeah, like our drop range is between zero and five. And like, that is what we should expect. And that's okay. But if I were building to perform at, you know, Carnegie Hall, (laughs) I would have a zero drop tolerance, right? It's like, it's kind of, I think it's funny because I think a lot of times in the sport, we think like, you're trying to win you're being all safe but if you're like cool and you're trying to like put on the best show you're being risky and i'm like actually like if i were trying to put on the best show i would try to make my execution as flawless as possible because to me like to keep the magic of the art form alive it really has to be super super clean and as i'm sure we'll talk about there's lots of ways to do really difficult things but minimize the risk of them because at the end of the day 
Like, I don't care how exciting the theory of your routine is. If you drop it 10 times, I'm not going to enjoy it very much. Mm-hmm. So like, I guess all this is a long diatribe to say that no matter what my goal is, I tend to not want to drop it. And like, sometimes that irks people because they think I'm just trying to like beat the judging system. But like, no, like at all times when I'm freestyling, I'm trying not to drop it unless I'm practicing. It's like, I, and even when I'm practicing, really, I don't want to drop it unless like I'm strategically dropping it to like work on something, which I talked about, but I don't want to drop it. So long story short, you know, having different goals, or maybe another way to put this is if you are playing with a partner who has a different goal than you, like don't just assume right away that that's going to be a problem because a lot of times your goals are going to align in some way, which I think certainly happened with me and Elka. Okay. So you're talking about building co-ops. Yes. So I guess I'll, we'll just start. I think the first thing that comes to mind is something you told me where you build the co-op around the move from your list. Let's say it's a good idea from the list. Yeah. That make sure that co-op is about that idea. So like everything is in support of that. The throw supports that one idea. Let's say it's like a a neuron or something. So like you're going to probably throw it on an angle so it gets easier into the neuron. Like I think it's easy to be like, this signature move is going to be at the very end and we're going to have to do like three moves before to prep it. And then you do the, the fancy move. Yeah. Just do the fancy moves. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, oh, there's, we're going to have to do a whole podcast <laughs> just on like how to build a combo because you just shot so many signals in my brain of things that I think are important. So I agree. Like my big thing, which I really think is like a kind of version of what I learned from Paul Kenny. Because Paul Kenny's big thing is every routine needs a signature co-op or a few signature co-ops. But I almost think it's like a Russian doll. It's like every routine needs a signature co-op. Every co-op needs a signature move. And there's probably some other Russian dolls in this analogy, but let's start there. And the signature move idea is important for a few reasons. One, there's a lot of times where I see routines where there's these co-ops and I think like, what was the point of that co-op? Like, What did you do there other than kill time or fill time? Now, under the old system, I think that was strategic, that execution was so penalizing that people purposely built filler co-ops to make sure that they had a high execution score. That's not really valuable anymore. And so I think one of the positives of the new judging system is that it is meant to like push you to... More content is better. Yeah, do more cool stuff. So if there's nothing cool about a co-op, dump it. Now... One like little wrinkle is there might be times where the co-op is built entirely to emphasize the music somehow. And so it doesn't need a signature move or like the music itself becomes the signature part of it. But I would just say, okay, like just build a different co-op that emphasizes the music and has a signature move, like something that tells the story. Now there's another aspect of this that I don't want to oversell because it's like kind of one of those rules I have that is meant to be broken a lot of times we have a co-op with a signature move and one of the players wants to add another signature move to the co-op. They want to do another like difficult, cool thing in it. And a lot of times they say like, we don't need to do that. Let's move that to the next one. Like we already have a great co-op with a signature move. We don't need a second one. And I think sometimes that's perceived as, oh, like you're being safe again. You're trying to like abuse the judging system. And I think like, no, like I think of it in terms of a writer. So I don't think I talk about this enough. Like, like my job is writing. So like a lot of the things I think about in freestyle are from writing. It's so weird. I don't think of myself as a writer, but like that's, I guess like 99% of my job. But like when you write a sentence, you want to have one 
topic in your sentence. You don't want to have a run on sentence with like three clauses that are about three different things. You want to be like, well, like Ryan's a good guy who wears a black jacket and that jacket is from Columbia and it is a really great company after all. I mean, that sentence starts to be completely meaningless and not make any sense. So a better sentence is just like, Ryan has a nice black jacket. It's clear, you know what I'm talking about. And there's not running, there's no run on, you remember it. And like, it's all good. Like you have as many sentences as you want. So get out what you want to say in this sentence and just save the rest of what you want to say for the next sentence. So I tend to treat co-ops that way. It's like, I love this co-op that has a donkey kick in it. If I also want a Laird's kick, well, I can just do another combo and it's going to be there. And like Ryan said, you want to build the co-op around the signature move. And so if I give each signature move its own combo, I'm using combo and co-op interchangeably. I hope that's not confusing. If each combo co-op is built around the signature move, I can really make sure that everything's in place to hit that move properly. Because one of the sad things is you have a combo with three signature moves in it. You miss the first one. Now you've just booted out the second and third mm-hmm. one. You're not going to have a chance of hitting them. They're just gone. And you can say, well, that's just being strategic for the judging system. Or you can say, well, I, if I'm doing a performance, I want at least two out of the three. <laughs> I don't want to bar myself from it. But like I said, I think it is a rule that's meant to be broken. There are times where you purposely want like I like especially like escalating diff of like you thought that was a signature combo when like Dan and I in 2019 first beer and also 2011 world championship we had this combo where we did three Laird's kicks <laughs> so I th- throw it as hard as I can Daniel kicks it a million miles in the air you think that's the signature but then I kick it a million miles in the air you think wow like they they doubled down and then no Dan hits it a third time it's like that kind of thing I think is a situation where the rule is meant to be broken. So don't treat it as dogma, but it's more like don't feel the need to stuff all your best moves in one combo. Don't stuff your sentence. Just keep it clean, crisp, and concise. I'm going to start going meta now. Okay. So it's not so much about what you think. It's what other people watching thinks. Yeah. When you're designing. So like after you do the combo with your in your practice, record it and watch it. Like, like not even at the end of the day, like right there, like do it once, record it, watch it and like watch it on the field. It's makes a huge difference and makes the process go, I don't know, it's like more accurate. I don't know what the right word is. It's like you're more on target. I think that's important for freestyle in general. I mean, I haven't talked about it that much, but we just do a whole podcast on it. Like obviously I'm the guy who makes a lot of videos and it is what it is. And people kind of misunderstand why I do it. But one of the main reasons I do it it's because that's how I learn like, what I'm doing and what does it look like. Like we are not just feedback. Yeah, like we're an artistic sport. We're trying to do things that have a certain aesthetic. If I can't see what that looks like, I have no idea what it looks like and whether I should be doing it or not. And a lot of times, whether it's my move or a co-op, I don't really know what it's going to look like until I watch it and see what it is. And a lot of times you realize, oh, I thought that looked cool, but it doesn't. But I thought you were going to go in another direction with that. And this one is a good example of when your goals matter. So I was playing with someone, I won't name them for reasons that I think will be obvious. And like they wanted to do this very specific move. And the problem was this move was not very cool and they weren't very good at it. It was like a very standard, normal move that they wanted to do. And I told them, you know, I don't think it's worth putting that move here because it's a really high risk move. 
And I didn't really have a better way of saying it other than like, I don't think there's going to be a good difficulty score for it, which is kind of annoying because then it seems like it's about the judging <laughs> system, but it's not like, actually, like, there's a reason why there's not a good difficulty score to it because no one thinks it's that cool. And I think a lot of times we get in this trap where like, this is new for me, so I'm excited to do it, even though it might not be that interesting. It's <laughs> so like, let's say it's whatever, and under the light catch, my most hated catch, it's like, and look, I get if you're a beginner player, this might be like the best thing you can do. So don't get me wrong. I'm not, but let's say like you, Ryan, like I've been working on this, you know, bird catch, like basic jumping on the leg. Like I really want to do it in a world. So I'd be like, cool, Ryan, but like, can you just hit a switch guide for me? Like it's way cooler <laughs> and way less risky. And like, even though you're excited about it, it's not going to be a good presentation for the audience. But again, this is where the goals come in. Like if your goal is to be hitting these new things that you've been working on, it might make sense to put that in there, even though it's not going to be that interesting to the audience. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Cause there's actually like an interesting tension that we haven't talked about enough. Like, and let me put an even a bigger umbrella. Like one thing I always find interesting and it's Carson from law school, but I won't be able to explain it, how it was taught to me, but there's always a way of framing an argument in a positive light and a negative light. And Here's what I mean by that. I'll use the example that I want to get to. So it's really easy as a freestyle to be like, I care about the audience experience. And all, I'm all about just firing up the crowd and just making them love what I'm doing of freestyle. That's like super positive. But there's another version where you say like, I don't care what anyone else thinks. I want to do what I care about and I believe in. And like, this is my version of freestyle. Now, like both of those things are super idealized kind of like heroic narratives that we can give about ourselves or players, but they're totally in tension with each other because <laughs> you could easily say to the person who cares about the audience, like what a sellout, like they just care. They just pander to the audience. <laughs> they don't do any like true freestyle. They're not pushing the bounds. They just do their goofy stuff that the audience thinks is cool because they're idiots. I've told us I don't use that word anymore. They're dumb. <laughs> it's probably also a bad word. Or you look at the, you know, person who's all about their own beliefs and be like, look at those selfish jerks. Like they don't care what anyone else thinks. They're all about their own ego. So like, I think one thing I have to keep in mind about everything in my life, but definitely in freestyle and definitely a lot of the debates we have in freestyle when there's kind of like, you know, teams like team difficulty, team artistry is like, there's a positive way and a negative way to frame everything. And I think I try and we should try better to always put it in the positive way. So I think, you know, I just said like this person really wanted to do this move that for them was exciting. It's easy to be like, well, like that's silly. Like why are you just do what the crowd is interested in? But I think there is a value that is you don't have to care what other people think. If that's important for you to do it, then you can do it. And I'm not going to belittle that, you know, especially if that was like agreed upon beforehand. Yeah, exactly. And like you said, it's though the goal thing is kind of like, hopefully you don't have a dispute when you're building a routine, but the goal thing is a great way to have that conversation when you're disagreeing about something or something's not working. Like, okay, well, like, let's talk about our goals again. And like, does this fit those goals? Oh, it doesn't like, well, let's scrap it. Or alternatively, like, you know what, this does fit our goals. You know, you said you wanted to do this. Like, that's fine. We can, we can do it that way. I think that makes a lot of sense. You reminded me of something else, but I can't remember what it was. <laughs> All right. What else do you have for me though? Okay. All right, so we're we have now co-ops combos that fit to the music, and we're kind of chugging along. 
when, how long do you think it should take to like fill up, to block out the whole routine? You know, I think we should step back one more time, which is you've built the co-op in theory. How do you decide whether it's worth doing? And when do you give up on a co-op that might not be working? So I'll let you answer that. So for me, it's record it first and watch your back. Yeah. So that just answers one question, which is, is it cool or not? Yeah. The other question is, can we actually complete it or not? Yeah. And I think it has to satisfy, I guess it depends on your goals, but for me, most of the time it has to satisfy both of those conditions. Yeah. And the one that I think we focus on more is like, can we complete it? Yeah. And yeah, do you, like for, I know you have a policy, but for me, my, I have like a, have faith type approach mm-hmm. where if it doesn't work even on the first day after 20 tries i bet tomorrow it's gonna work yeah so i think one and i don't know if this has always been true but i feel like i'm at this stage where i played so long that i usually have a good idea of whether or not something's gonna work and sometimes it's not working but i just know it's gonna work and i can power through that but there are other times where right away I'm just thinking like this is not going to work. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if everyone can do that. Or it's like a sixth sense, right? Or I don't even know if I could have done that seven or eight years ago either. It's like I don't know. I don't really remember very well. But you know, a lot of times it comes down to the we don't have time. You know, it's like mm-hmm. this probably would work because just think about learning to move yourself. Like there's so many moves where you do it ten thousand times, it never works, and then suddenly it works every single time. So I can imagine that same logic applies to combos, but sometimes you don't have that time or, you know, it's just easier to find something that's just as good that does work right away. Yeah. So it is, yeah. In the game industry, we have this phrase where it's like killing your baby Mm -hmm. and you just have to, that's just a good trait when you're trying to be creative is like being able to kill your, your, your ideas. Let me translate Ryan, for the world, I think what you're saying is like, you have to be ready to give up on a co-op. Yep. But I want to take it even further because I think it's, for most people, it's relatively easy to give up the co-op that you're building. Some people have trouble with that. And sometimes that can be a source of tension where someone really wants a combo to work. But I kind of think like if the other person is not interested in your combo, do it a few times, give it a few tries, but be ready to scrap it right away. Because that's also where routine building becomes unpleasant when you're really trying to push your combo on somebody else like we all do it but we shouldn't um but where i think it's really important is you're six months into the year and you played six tournaments and you need to kill the co-op and sometimes it's because it didn't it's not working kill it don't have an ego about it just kill it don't get stuck in some cost like cognitive dissonance we've tried it a million times we're not going to kill it now but another version of that which happens i think with us a lot or i think it happened with us a lot is the combo starts as one thing and it gets transformed into something else. Like maybe it was too hard and it became easier and easier and easier. And now it's like, okay, it's working, but we should sub in something better because what it's become is no longer worth doing. Yeah. And you have to kill that co-op too. Yeah. I'm trying. Yeah. I think, do, have you ever killed a co-op because you couldn't remember it? No, I've <laughs> never done that. When did you do that? No, I was thinking, there's like, no, I'm pretty sure it's, I think mean, it's hard to like find a specific case because yeah. like you don't, you don't point, remember, you remember it. but I'm sure I've been like at the end of a routine and then like when we 
started this and like wrote everything down this is not what we wrote down yeah uh, we just naturally have this other co-op oh that's yeah. true for sure a lot <laughs> of times the co-op transforms without anyone ever talking about it and it's fine um you're running another thing i do think it's a little bit dangerous we've all done it i still do it of i can't do this now but i promise by the time this tournament <laughs> rolls around i'll know how to do this move recipe for disaster i think there is a limited number of those that is okay i think it's okay but i'm just telling you when you say that probably you won't be able to (laughs) and a lot of that relates to how we vastly underestimate how long it takes to learn things like if and i think the reason we do that is because usually you can hit a move within the first five minutes but that doesn't mean you've learned it you're a long way away from being able to do it consistently and i think most moves take years to learn and anyone who disagrees with me, let's talk. And I will try to show you because it's certainly taken me years to learn basically every move. Yeah, that reminds me every, I think every move you learn to do in the jam and then you learn to do it in a competition. And you have to be able to recognize which ones you have when you're building the routine. I'll go even further back. First, you have to be able to do it at all. Then you have to be able to do it by yourself in practice. Then you have to be able to do it in a jam. Then you have to be able to do it in a competition. Like there's just stages of being able to do it. And it takes, it is like the final stage to be able to do it in competition, which is, you know, so artificial and it has to be really condition independent and you have to be able to do it on command, like in that moment. That's a whole other level than being able to yeah, pick the perfect conditions. You don't warm it up. You're yeah. not going to practice try when you're in competition. Yeah. You just have to do it. So just a little bit of a warning of, I can't do this now, but I'll be able to do it in the future. Probably, probably not going to work. There's another, there's so many aspects to building your co-op. There was another one I was thinking it or not. Oh, I didn't talk about like one of those fundamental things that I wanted to talk about. Because I build all my co-ops in theory around a signature move, basically every other part of the co-op is irrelevant. In this sense only. When we're performing the routine, and as we all know, things are going to go wrong. And things are going to change and you have to adapt. You plan on doing this, you plan on doing that, but you have to go to your B options, your C options, your D options. As long as we're aiming all of our efforts towards getting to the signature move, everything else is flexible. Like irrelevant was too strong a word. Flexible is really what I mean. So let's say we have a co-op that's built around me setting to you to like a sole brush to my catch. Pretty straightforward, simple co-op. And also to be clear, like a signature move can be that's simple. Like every signature move doesn't have to be, you know, double spinning, hammer, sabbatical. Like it can be like, this is the soul brush combo. That's really about the soul brush. If for whatever reason, I don't think we'd build a co-op this boring, although I'm sure we have in the past. Like I pass to you, you pass to me. I set to your soul brush, I catch. What I just said, that's the framework of the combo. And that's what's important. Whether your pass is a guided shoot, a flawed shoot, a bad attitude shoot, I don't know, like shoot. It doesn't really matter because it gets to the same place. All that matters is I'm able to set you to the soul brush. And the reason I say this is that some people get so caught up with every move being exactly the way they planned it, that one, they become very frustrated because they're never going to hit the routine a hundred percent the way they planned it. And two, it can cause tension with your partners when they're like, I thought you were going to do whatever shoot there. It's like, yeah, that's my plan, but I had to go to my plan B. So I like to think of it in terms of blocking. I don't know if I'm using this word right. Because we've also used it in another context, but I use it. Sorry if it's wrong. I'm like, for me, blocking means I need to know where I'm supposed to be positioned and who's supposed to have the disc win. So it's like, all I know is that Ryan sets it to me with spin. 
I set it back to him with a brush. He soul brushes it. I catch it. So however he gets to do his spin is fine. However I brush it to him is fine. He soul brushes. I catch it. Like the easy example is the catch. When people are like, I thought you were going to do a flamingitis there. It's like, no, like I pivoted. Like I, <laughs> all I know is I'm catching here. I don't really care what my catch is. Obviously there are times where the catch is the signature or like you all also in all this, you have a plan A, like here's what we want to do. But if I'm not able to do the catch that I planned, here's my other catch, which I'm going to do based on the moment and the conditions. So like, I think that's an important feature and I, whether people agree with me or not, I think that's always what ends up happening. What do you think? Yeah. Would you agree that it's always better to compromise on everything but the signature move? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like just, that's another just power or like theory behind the signature move is it's your guidepost. Like it's your tiebreaker. We are working to get to this point because if you have three parts of the combo, you don't know which part to prioritize because like that can really easily happen. It's sort of like, I need enough spin to do my triple at the end of this combo. But if you're really worried about getting your donkey kick off, you're gonna be like, fine, I don't care. I'm gonna kill all the spin so that I can do my donkey kick. But now there's not enough spin for me to do my triple. But if the triple is the signature part of the combo, it's easier to be like, well, I was gonna do this, but I'm gonna kill all the spin. You need it. Here you go, do your triple. So like the signature move is a guidepost in that sense. Okay. Awesome. Okay, now to your question. <laughs> you have all your combos. And then, then what, I guess. Yeah. How, how long do you think it should take to get to run throughs? I think there is an expression that I think is common with my amazing co-clerk, Erica Salazar used to say this to me all the time. She was amazing. I love her. She used to always say like the work fills the time. <laughs> so like in her, in, in that context, like if we were really busy, we got all of our work done really quickly. But if we had lots of time and we're bored, we would like unconsciously stretch out all the work. So all I have to say is if you have one day to build your routine, you got to get to run-throughs on the first day. <laughs> but let's say you have unlimited time, but you've already built the routine. So let me just assume you've built it. Is that fair? I don't know. Like, I was thinking more like how do you divide up? So I was going to talk about you should schedule your practice so you're done blocking by a certain percentage of the practice that's like always have at least one full day so if you have more than one day to practice you should be doing run-throughs at least one full day yeah so okay i would agree with you and i do agree with you in the normal context of freestyle but is that most you have like a month to build a routine but i think there's a limit on how much value there is to doing run-throughs i think like there's diminishing returns on it so, and I've, I've never really done this, but I've heard stories of people like Matt Gothier told me a story about building a routine with some superstar players. And they were like, we're going to do the most perfect dropless routine ever. They practice it a million times and then they still dropped it a million times. And he said like, at a certain point, it wasn't helping anymore that we're practicing. So that said, like if you had a whole year and all you wanted to do was build a routine with your friend, I would say spend, you know, the first 340 days. Well, actually that's a little extreme, like, Spend the first hundred days building your routine. Mm -hmm. Take your time. Then do run-throughs every now and then, like the rest of the year. Like meaning like a lot of your time, if you have it, should be spent building an awesome routine. Cause probably you only need, I don't know, a Yeah, what's the sweet spot? Again, it like it kind of scales. So like I think like after three hours of run-throughs, you're already starting to experience diminishing returns. 
But I think if you had unlimited time, like the true point where it's like starts to become noisy and meaningless is probably like 50 hours for all I know. <laughs> There's also a time versus intensity component. Like I think we experience this if you've practiced anything, like learned an instrument. Practicing 50 hours in one week is not nearly as valuable as practicing one hour for 50 weeks, mm-hmm. right? So like I say that th- you start to get diminishing returns after three hours of doing a routine run-throughs. But if you did one hour in January, two hours in May, one hour, and like you could probably do 10 hours spread out over a year. And each one of those hours would be pretty valuable. So in other words, I have no idea, but like, I kind of get what you're getting at. Like, I think most of the time, let's say you have a few days and I would say like first day, let's say you have three days. I would spend the first day blocking it and maybe doing like a really slow, like run through second day you're working, you're like, Second day, you're going through sections and then maybe at the end for kind of fun, you do run-throughs, maybe even not with the music. And then the last day is run-throughs. Like, I think that's kind of my general framework, but I don't know. It kind of depends on the situation. Yeah. I think maybe the one-third, one-third, one-third is a good rule of thumb. But the middle third is the third that I think most people miss. Do you think? I think a lot of people build the routine and go to run-throughs. And to me, I think like you build the theory of the routine like co-op by co-op then you like actually learn the routine and then you do run-throughs see so how do you not forget to do the middle section i think it's hard and honestly i skip it a lot because i just get this feeling that my partner is not really going to be into it you know like i think it's something i do and i feel like i kind of have control and i want to be careful like it's not like one person should have control necessarily. You might actually kind of think that with like totally positive reasons for it. But like, if I feel like I'm kind of in the mentorship position and like the person I'm playing with is like interested in how I do things, I will do that middle section. But like a lot of times when I play, like, I don't think Dan and I really did that this year. And like, I didn't really want to like push it. Um, but like, I would really like to build out these sections and really work on each section individually. But even if you're not going to do that, like I do think everyone kind of should go through a normal framework of build the little pieces, put the pieces together, then do no music. Like this part is critical that I think almost everyone does. And if you're not, you should do it. No music run throughs as long as they take just let's go really slow. If it takes us 10 minutes to get through this routine, let's do it. And then it's only at the very end that you add the music to it. Now, you might have to do a little bit of back and forth. Like, you have to try with the music every now and then to make sure that what you plan to do is going to fit. Um, that should have been done partially when you're building the co-ops, obviously, and, like, putting them into the music. But you also have to kind of check in every now and then with the music to make sure it's going to work. But doing run things with that music is important because, one, you can go slower. And one of my mottos from my musician days is practice slow, learn fast. I think that's a really good motto. Two, I had a funny moment with Ilka where I wanted us to do a run-through without the music. We were, like, kind of far into the routine. And she was like, well, like, why? Like, let's just go to the music. Like, I can't remember it without the music. And I was like, exactly. That is exactly <laughs> why we're doing it without the music. Like, kind of on the using different techniques. Like, your brain learns things through different mechanisms. So a lot of people know that if you practice your routine to music, the music will cue you to the section of the routine you want to do. That's great. But it's also very powerful and will reinforce your memory if you learn the routine without the music. Mm-hmm. And maybe in the actual tournament, you get off on the music and the music's not going to be able to help you or you might not be able to hear it or any number of things can go wrong. 
So again, for the memory perspective, playing with and without music is important. Um, another thing I do that I think is critical, and again, sometimes I don't do this when I don't think my partner is receptive to it, but when I'm doing my run-throughs without music, every time I make a mistake, we stop and we work on that combo before we move on. Like we make sure we hit it at least once, if not a couple times before we go forward. I think that part's really important because it's awkward sometimes to bring that up. Yeah. Like when you're in the middle section, you're like, wait, we've already committed all this time blocking it. And now we need to work on this. And like, I'm not getting what I want. Like, it's important to say that, I think. I'm sure if you're the, like the, the newer person yeah. in the team, you have to be like, wait a minute, this is too hard. Or, yeah, and we should come back to that idea of like communicating things that are going wrong but i just in the most basic sense it's like we're going to do this run through and the reason it's going to take so long is every time we make a mistake we're going to fix it until we get it right and i'll give you a little story about this i read this book about like situations in history where like certain regions became really good at something like brazilian soccer players and like russian ballerinas and things like this and one of the things this book talked about was this apparently famous tape of this six-year-old girl practicing piano it's like the clarissa tape or something and it's very famous in learning psychology circles because the, the like exaggeration about it is this six-year-old girl learns more about the piano in 30 seconds than the average person learns in six months and the main thing she does is that she's practicing whatever song she's practicing and every time she makes a mistake she stops and she fixes it but we usually do the opposite when we practice routines is people are kind of bowling through the routine to get to the end of it. And I think there's this theory that, well, when the routine's happening, we're not going to be able to stop. So we have to practice going forward. Fine, but do that later. First, you need to make sure you can do everything. And later you can practice what do you do? How do you respond to the things that go wrong? So really take the time to practice everything, make sure you get it right. But now let's stop and talk about like communicating things that are going wrong. So like, tell me more about how important this is and what kinds of techniques you can use to kind of make it not so awkward when you have to be like, Hey, is it working? I think, okay. So the most obvious one is someone setting you for the catch yeah. and it's not in the right place. Yeah. And I think it's important to first, it's important to know that it might not be you. It might be the other person setting it to you. So like you on the reverse that though, because most people have the opposite problem. First, accept that it might be you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I agree. Like, you have to consider both sides. Like, don't assume it's the other person. Don't assume it's yourself. Explore both. Okay. But let me add another thing to that, which is sometimes it is the other person, but you can't expect them to do what you need them to do. So, like, I've had this a lot where people want some completely unrealistic set within a micrometer from, you know, 50 feet away off of, like, a weird throw or, like, you want me to back roll it 60 feet into your like tiny little hoop window. And it's like, okay, it is technically my fault that it's not working, but I'm unable to do that. And this is where it's kind of nice in my whole theory. Like it's easy to apologize. It's easy to admit you're bad. I think it's so easy in a routine to be like, Hey, like I know you want to do that catch, but I can't give you the set you need for that. And like, I'll take the blame for that. That's totally fine. It's my fault. I can't get you that, but I can't get it to you in a way that's consistent enough. So a lot of times, it, like I said this for yourself, like it's usually the set that's the problem, not the move or catch or whatever it is, but accept that the setter might not be able to give you the set you want and change it and do something else. Yeah. I was going to say something. Oh yeah. Like when it's not working and 
I feel like the smallest thing that's not working is good justification for changing a lot. Like changing the whole cloth just because one piece is barely not working is common. And like, yeah, we were talking about some costs earlier. Yeah. That's going to happen a lot. And when you're going through fixing things like one by one, it's going to feel like the smallest thing is going to be the problem. Like the set is always just half a centimeter away, but sometimes it just never will be half a centimeter closer. It's also related to the thing of like, don't let that small thing kill your signature move or whatever. It's sort of like, it always kills me. It's like, well, the thing we're messing up is the least important part of this combo. So like, we need to fix it. You know, it's always so frustrating when you're able to crush the part that matters if you can get to it, but you can't get to it because of some silly thing. And it kind of relates back to the, like, you're trying to do something that's not that cool that's not really worth anything to anybody but that's the problem with the co-op like you need to get rid of it and you need to fix it and you need to move on so like at work we do a lot of debugging and a lot of times we're debugging someone's code that they wrote yeah with them. but it's we never blame that person's code that wrote it we never blame the person who made the problem yeah for the problem and i think you have to have the same approach when you're fixing problems in the routine like it doesn't matter whose fault it is or who like came up with that idea like just treat it the same like it like you're both on the same side like i try and approach it like we're both trying to fix the problem yeah and that makes talking about it a lot easier it's not about hey you're kind of you're making this thing troublesome for our routine it's like no there's a problem in our routine what can we do to fix it that's great advice i think kind of having almost like a value neutral clicker training approach is important because i think like you said, it's not, it really isn't anyone's fault. There's no moral failing to not being able to set it in the right spot. And it is kind of a two-way street for all these things. So not getting caught up in it is makes a big difference. And also get like you said something really important there too about don't feel like this is your co-op and this is my co-op and like don't take ownership of that. I think maybe this is this is not because I'm virtuous. I think it's just um have bad memory i usually don't remember like who came up with what or why it is so i tend to not think of co-ops in terms of, like this one you came up with and this one i came up with and i think if you do think that way it's really problematic because then when your teammates are trying to get rid of your co-op it becomes much more adversarial and can cause a lot more tension than if you view them as like these are all of our co-ops and that's something that gets easier as you play longer i think because like i think you're i think almost ironically your ego lessens so i think like at the beginning of when i was playing i cared more about being like yeah but like this is the co-op where i do my really cool catch that i worked on and i'm like so bummed if we're gonna cut it and get rid of it whereas now i'm it's a lot easier for me to be like if you do all the cool moves then great like i don't have to do anything like that's fine like i don't need like i say this all the time when i'm building routines like i don't need to do this like this thing that we're trying to build in there, I don't need it. So if it's not working, like we can cut it. And I think that also helps create an environment where it's easy to kind of find these problems and disagree. Now I have one concrete technique that I'm just kind of thinking of in my head of helping deal with these like kind of awkward conversations you might have to have. Because sometimes the problem is one person realizes something's not working, but the other person doesn't. Or another person is just convinced it's going to work. But you're not. Okay. And here's my very simple technique. And it's kind of passive aggressive. I don't mean it to be, but I don't really know anything else to do. I just say, let's do it again. Let's do it again. Let's do it again. 
And once we've done it 25 times and it hasn't worked, eventually the other person realizes, okay, we need to fix this. I think that's a really smart way to do it. Yeah, it's, no it, judgment. I don't say yeah. like it's not work. I I try really hard. I I try really hard to not say this isn't working until like it's clear they acknowledge that. It's just sort of like, no problem. Let's try it again. Oh, don't worry about it. Let's try it again. And and some of that's honest. It's like, well, like if it starts working, then great, we're good. But if it's not going to start working, eventually you're going to realize that's not going to work, and then we can fix it. Okay, so I think we're probably rounding out here soon. So we talked about building. Let's talk about kind of prep, day zero, building co-ops, putting them to the music, working from building the co-ops to doing run-throughs. I guess we haven't really talked about doing run-throughs with the music. So what's your approach to that? When do you stop if a run-through isn't going well? How many run-throughs do you need to do? Things like that. So I think it's contextual. So there's like a, I don't know, like a, a series of things. So like the first run through is much different than the last run through you do. Mm -hmm. And in the beginning, the first part of doing the run through is being able to do it from memory on time. So I think that's the main focus for me at the start of run throughs is you have the music going and we're trying to remember the routine fast enough that we can complete it before the music stops. Yeah. What do you think? So I almost think we should do a whole episode on how to remember routines because there's a lot of techniques that you can use and a lot of them involve how you do your run-throughs. I, once I'm at the music stage, I've already kind of done the stage of fixing things that weren't working. And now that I'm at the music stage, at least after a few run-throughs, it's a lot easier to get to the point where I say, like, now we do run-throughs and we don't stop no matter what happens because people really just get frustrated when there's one drop right at the beginning and they want to stop and start over. And that kind of leads to that problem of you're just practicing in the beginning, you're not getting to the rest. And actually one thing that was like a little bit of like a difference between me and Daniel is Daniel very much likes to stop the routine if it's not going well. And I think that's something like Paul Kenny would do. And then there were times where Paul Kenny would say, well, well now we're going to do a run through where we just got to play through it. So like, again, for me, it's a personal preference. It's not necessarily right or wrong. I like to, at this stage, try to get through the whole routine. I also, like, one thing I would do with Paul and we had more time is we'd have run-throughs of different goals. So it's like, this run-through, we're going to try to hit every move as we intended. Like, we're going to go for everything. This run-through, we're going to go for execution. We're just going to do whatever we can to catch. And you just kind of practice the routine through different lenses, which helps you remember it better. It helps you perform it better. It helps you find those plans A, B, C, and D. And it helps you figure out what your comfort zone is for all these different moves. So that can be really helpful and also make it more interesting than just doing mm -hmm. the do you same. Think the order matters of which lens you go first. Like, should you do execution first, focused, or should you do not stopping first? I don't know. If I would guess, it would be, I mean, not stopping would kind of be throughout at this stage. Again, like what I'm kind of like cheating by saying this stage. Um, if anything, I would guess we'd want to be practicing first. Like, let's do everything we really want to do. Let's do the perfect version of the routine. Oh, you think, I think it's and the opposite. And then switch right? to execution. So why do you think it's the opposite? Because I don't, uh, so this is one thing I started doing with Pavel and you in this most recent co-op yeah. was we're like, we're doing the no bailing. Yeah. Like you're not allowed to bail yeah. for the catch. And I think that's way more valuable at the end. Of the, the run-throughs because you've already practiced your bails and you know you can catch it if you need to but it's like uh like paul Macbeth, the best disc golfer he's always like 
I'm when he's practicing putting, he's like, I'm on the 18th hole of the world championships. Like I need the pressure. Yeah. And like doing the no bail run through is the pressure. Yeah. I can believe that. I often, I, I can also imagine that should be practiced much more than the execution version, because I think one, obviously if you're practicing what you actually want to do, you're getting better at it. Mm-hmm. And Two, a lot of times you find out that your best execution runs are when you do what you intend to do. Because it's kind of like we experienced just jamming. And when you bail, a lot of times it's the bail that makes you make the mistake rather than going for it. Um, but it's interesting. But it is kind of nice to think there's different ways to do the routine that can kind of keep it fresh and help you learn it through different lenses. So one other topic to mention here I think makes sense how do you feel about walkthroughs without the disc or like the different variations on kind of like run-throughs that don't involve music and the, the disc? All the pieces. Yeah. I think those are all tools to fix a problem. So if you're having trouble remembering, then do it without the disc because you yeah. do it twice as fast. Yeah. And like, what are some of the other ones? Like, I like practicing where each person does a run-through without the other people. Oh yeah. That's way memory-based. So yeah. That way you're not relying on you were talking about shared memory yeah you can build the routine outside of shared memory so that i think that one's really important and i'll add to it also like learning your partner's parts because a lot of times in a routine it's sort of like i have no idea what to do here except that ryan stands right in front of me and throws it vertically and that's what triggers my memory but the problem is if something goes wrong and ryan's not there or like just the pressure of the moment i forget but if i reinforce that memory by doing walkthroughs without Ryan or like learning Ryan's part, I create like a new neural network to remember the routine in that way. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I have to say, I walkthroughs are so boring and, you know, Paul Kenny's the one who drilled into me the importance of them. And I probably don't do them enough, but one thing, they are kind of a cheat code when you just really don't want to do a run through because it's, <laughs> I don't want to put on nails or I'm too tired. At least you can do the walkthrough to remember it. I also recommend visualization when I was like really trying hard to win and like really cared about performing better, a lot of times when I would be like commuting somewhere or walking somewhere, I would just run through the routine in my head. I, I think Michael Phelps had this whole story about how he had the videotape. And he would play the videotape in his head of him winning all these things. And there's certainly a lot of value in visualizing. It's also a really great memory building tool because you have no aids when you're just doing it all in your brain, but it can really lock in the memory. Okay, I have a question for you. Okay. So uh, this usually happens like on the last day or maybe the second last day. At the end of the day, it's you're tired. And there's always a question is, do we do one more run through? Like, what do you think, like, what are the factors where you should actually do the one more run through? Because I lately I felt lazy, like I don't want to do the run through, but I don't know why that is late. Well, see, I think you and you are in the same position, which is I'm so over competing that like I should, we'll have to have a longer conversation about how <laughs> at least one of us is probably going to stop competing soon or at least take a long break from competing. But like that has affected a lot of how I think about all these things because I don't have the same interest and attention that I would have had before necessarily. So now my point is very simple, which is I do as much as my partner wants to do. So if they want to keep doing run-throughs, I will keep doing run-throughs. But I usually don't want to keep doing run-throughs. I'd rather just stop and take a break. Um, with that said, like, I think there are factors that are pretty common. So I think a lot of times people like to end kind of on a high note and 
sometimes it means ending earlier than you necessarily should though. It's like, that was a good one. Like <laughs> we can be done now, but sometimes it was kind of a lucky good one and you should keep going. At the same time, sometimes you have to have the strength to be like, Hey, it's not going well, but we have another day. Let's take a break now before this becomes mm-hmm. frustrating because what you really don't want to have happen is start to hate your routine or get really bored of your routine. And the boredom thing can be really huge because if you've done the routine so many times, it becomes really rote. It's almost like it's kind of amazing how Broadway performers can put on the same show with the same enthusiasm every night, but that's why they're professionals. <laughs> so it's really hard to do that. Did and they do studies on that where there's like a peak? It's I'm, like six months. Wow, well, six months sounds like a long time, mm-hmm. but I'm sure there is some diminishment in the quality as they go on. It's like, I think there is a limit and I think you do reach a point where it's not going to get much better, or at least it's not going to get much better in the near future. But actually you also remind me of another thing, which is when I'm doing run-throughs, I like to assess, are there consistent trouble spots? So I always say like, if our mistakes are different every time, then we're in a healthy place. But if our mistakes in the same place every time, that means we have a problem that we need to fix. Mm, that's a good one. So I'm like always saying like, oh, like we made a bunch of mistakes. We haven't made those mistakes before. It's so like, that's fine. And a related problem is were the mistakes on exchanges or were the mistakes like internal to each player? So like the easy example, if there's an indie in your routine, if you mess up your indie, I don't care. That's your indie, fix it. Um, <laughs> but is, or like, is there a part of the co-op that I'm messing up the part that's just my moves? Not such a big problem because I can fix that. But if it's a problem where we're passing to each other, then we need to work on it together because we need each other to be able to fix the problem. Um, but that's just another big picture take on like how our routine's going and what we need to fix. But it also relates a little bit to the question of when do you stop? So if you're reaching the point where you might still be making mistakes, but they're different every time and there's not like something that needs to be fixed, there's not some systematic problem with the routine, it's probably a good time to stop. And once you have the routine, it's in a healthy place. I kind of reached the point where it's maybe like one to five run-throughs anytime it's convenient, but not much more than that. I don't think I've ever really sat down and done like three hours of run-throughs, right? No. Although I wonder if that's an experience thing, because as I've, like, during the points run, I realized run-throughs, we did less and less run-throughs yeah. the later we were into the points run. It's so interesting, though, because when we played in 2017 and 2018, when we proved the points run, I don't remember us practicing very much, because I don't think we had a lot of time. Like, I remember practicing in Seattle in some terrible field with we're horrible Lake, wind. Yeah. And, and we were in your like neighborhood park in New York. Yeah, but I think the time you came for that, one, it was freezing cold. And two, I had like an injury where I thought when you got there, I wouldn't be able to play. But we could kind of play and we played a little bit. But even then, it's like we probably had a few days of practice for those worlds, which on the one hand makes perfect sense. That's how much time people normally have. On the other hand, we saw each other all the time and we're at all these tournaments and we so rarely did run-throughs. Like we were, like Paul Kenny, when you play with Paul, pretty much every time you see him, at least when I played with him earlier on, like we would do run-throughs or like walk-throughs or something. Like he would always pull me aside and be like, we're doing something. But we didn't really do that. Like maybe we should have. It obviously worked out fine for us, but we didn't really practice the routine that much. Yeah. We also built it using the building block method, which made it easier in all aspects. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's interesting. I mean, there's kind of an element of all this of every partnership is different and what 
you end up doing what works for you is going to be different, but having flexibility helps. Like one thing we really haven't said is try to be flexible because people get so rigid and what they want to do in the routines and how they want to practice routines. And if both sides don't have some degree of flexibility, it's a really unpleasant experience. Awesome. Anything else? I don't think so. We've been going on for quite a while. Yeah. We probably killed a lot of future routine building sections by doing so much now, but I'm sure there's like aspects I think we could pick up on in other podcasts like memory or, or practicing or other aspects of it. Um, but with that, it was great having our first in-person podcast. Hopefully the audio is okay. And with that, check out clockercounter.com. Send us an email at clockercounter at gmail.com. Like, create, subscribe. It's so funny. We have no social media, either one of us. Like we don't, <laughs> we don't even, we don't know what you're using out there, how you're finding this or how you interact with it, but TikTok us, you know, whatever it is. Hopefully, hopefully it helps out. And uh, we'll talk to you next time.